Welcome to the Sober Podcast, brought to you by the Sober Network. We're revolutionizing the treatment industry by creating its own token economy and much more. Get ready to hear fresh ideas in an industry that has relied on dated interventions for decades. We're helping a new generation of substance users who are digital natives and our technology expertise is resulting in impactful social change. We understand how to get things done. We walk the walk. Our multiple award-winning platforms have proven that technology, coupled with incentivized human accountability, produces measurable, positive outcomes. Let's get started. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Sober Podcast, uh, brought to you by the Sober Network, uh, soon, soon to be the Soberverse. It is Tuesday, February 15th. Uh, I'm your host, Howie Marlin, and I am here with Eric Brickler today from sunny Southern Florida, uh, or somewhere in South Florida, you'll tell me in a moment. Um, he's a licensed mental health counselor and a certified EMDR therapist. Hey, thanks for joining us today, Eric. Um, how's the sunshine down there? It's pretty nice. We had our uh, our two days of winter in uh, a couple weeks ago, <laughs> and that, that came and went. It, it reached uh, you know a frigid like 50 degrees for a couple of days. People were worried. The iguanas froze. I heard. Um, that's what happens, man. They uh, so the well because they're cold blooded. They actually freeze and they fall out of the trees, right? <laughs> and uh, some of them will splatter. Like they'll hit your car. It's like the, like it's like raining lizards here. That that's what happens when it gets really cold. It's it, it's funny. I heard. I actually heard of that happening before. Um, and your two days of winter. Uh, meanwhile, I'm I'm talking to you from uh, very dark and very cold Martha's Vineyard. Um, which is where my wife grew up. That's why we're here, by the way. And yes, gotcha. during the summer, it can be fantastic if you like crowds. But, um, you know, I, I encourage people, if you want to come visit the island, come in September. Gotcha. Water's warm. The restaurants are open. Everybody's there. The kids are back at school. What's, so, going, on there? What's going on there in January? Um, a whole lot of drinking and drugging. Yeah. Um, traditionally the island population, blue collar, these would be all of the infrastructure people. Um, the summer folks don't want any work done in the summer because they're summering. So all the contractors will start in September, get their work done by December, January, pretty much wrap it up. Then they'll go on unemployment. When the unemployment runs out, then they're drinking into oblivion. So I'll say right now, things are under control. The pace of the island, the ER is not overwhelmed just yet. Although because of COVID, we've had some interesting things happening here on Gilligan's Island. No kidding. We are not insulated. People thought we were. A lot of people decided to move to the island because they thought that we would somehow be safer here. Nah, you got to be kidding me. We have a I feel like the whole thing would just have like a, a shining vibe. You know, <laughs> like winter time on Martha's Vineyard. Here's Johnny. Yeah, yeah like, like mansions, gigantic mansions and resorts with like one person. With the, with the caretakers frozen to the door. <laughs> yeah, like everyone's on the fringe of, of, of like madness. Well, it's an interesting place. We have a very, very active um, um, group of clinicians. I was uh, I, I was an employee of the hospital on the substance use disorder team for a few years. 
working out of the ER for a few years, the crisis intervention. So, you know, really very much part of the way uh, things are dealt with here on the island. And we have a very large group of recovery coaches, sobriety coaches, clinicians, therapists, doctors, psychiatrists, and our Martha's Vineyard Community Services Organization, incredibly wonderful for the work that they do to so many folks. And we're a good model. We're a good model. You see, the the money people are gone. We're we're just the blue collar people now. See, that's critically important. Everybody thinks of Martha's Vineyard as, oh, the hoi foi and and all that. ah, Yeah, that's them. And we hardly see them. And they're here for a couple of months and then gone. You don't live next door to like Dan Aykroyd or anything? I do. Dan Aykroyd's my neighbor. Obama's my neighbor. The Clintons, they live behind me. Oh, yeah, we get tea all the time. No, I don't see these people. Although I have seen James Taylor in the grocery store. Nice. Yeah, when I first got here, he literally turned and asked me for one particular candy bar. And I looked at him. Oh, yeah, here you go. I know that guy. Anyway. Um, yeah, well, it's funny. You see a lot of interesting people in the summer, a lot of rock stars, a lot of movie people, um, and they're just walking around by themselves. Very cool. Hey, enough about me and us in here. So, Eric, what are your credentials and what do you specialize in? Um, okay, so I'm a licensed mental health counselor here in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. So we're here in the Silicon Valley of substance use disorder treatment. The you know the Palm Beach County like the Tri County area, there's probably hundreds, literally hundreds of licensed facilities here, transitional housing, all of it. So most people in behavioral health, at the very least, get their start uh, working in substance use disorder treatment, as did I, and I'm still involved in it. So that for me transitioned into grief and loss is a big part of the work that I do and trauma and the intersection of grief and loss and trauma. So, and with the, this population of people, substance use disordered individuals, there's a lot of that. I think it's probably the most untreated component of the disease is the grief and loss aspect and the attention to how losses in childhood and even losses currently are, impacted people's sobriety. How does that integrate with the concept of loss and trauma regarding substance abuse? So if you think about this, you have a few different things going on there, right? So the opioid epidemic. So now you're talking about like complex grief and loss, complex trauma, multiple losses. So here, I'll give you an example. So let's say um, your garden variety, 25-year-old opioid opioid use disordered individual entering a treatment center, right? And they're so numbed out on opiates and fentanyl and, you know, all the rest of it that when they start to sober up, now we start to get into the reality of what my life has been. And there are these moments that really hadn't fully been integrated into the psyche, but now they're becoming a little bit clearer. And I'm looking back at all these people that, that I know that died, my peer group, because it's never one. It's usually, if you're part of a peer group of opioid users, it's usually a few people you know 
that have died, people that are familiar to you, maybe people you grew up with. And then you start thinking about things like, hey, you know, this woman was my first girlfriend and I shot her up for the first time. I was the one who introduced her to it. And last September, she overdosed and died. And I just kind of like kept on going. Maybe I even went to the funeral and like her uncle told me to leave or whatever because they knew who I was or, you know, I was one of those. So you have a lot of those kinds of stories of blame, responsibility, shame, guilt, all of those kinds of things that when people start to get sober, they're really taking a look at that. They're starting to experience those things and it, it complicates the process as you, as you might imagine. And what does your specialty do to address it? Um, well, in the words of Irving Young, each of us must decide how much truth he can stand. And also in the words of Irving Young, in order to, in order to make peace with the dead, we must first make peace with the living. So it's a lot of work to get resolution on relational dynamics. And it's a lot of work on shame and guilt and looking at the self-attribution of these experiences, like what am I attributing to myself? What part of this is my fault? And with substance use disorder treatment and recovery, there's another element of it. Because if I'm kind of caught up in guilt and shame, this is, this is where it gets a little more nuanced, right? If I'm caught up in guilt and shame as a person who's recently recovered and most at risk for relapse, that guilt and shame actually operates in service of the disease itself. Because when we retreat into shame, guilt, self-pity, self-loathing, all of those different things, it's just a faster pathway to sabotage recovery efforts and not have to deal with these things. And it's my reasoning, right? It's my excuse. It's all built in. So we really have to look at all of those things. And hopefully get to a place where all of these people. So again, I, I like existential philosophy. I, I approach, because when you're dealing with mortality, when you're dealing with grief and loss and trauma, I like to approach, approach it from an existential lens. So if you think about like Viktor Frankl, logotherapy, and the whole idea that you can, you can make it through any experience as long as you're able to attach like meaning and purpose to the experience. Meaning and purpose. Explain the logo therapy. Give me a two sentence. You touched okay, so, on it, but most people don't know. So, okay, fair enough. Viktor Frankl was, uh, he was a preeminent psychiatrist in uh, Vienna. I think it was Vienna, Austria during, during World War II, during uh, the Holocaust. Everything was taken from this guy, his family, he was in a concentration camp, everyone was killed. And he learned in this experience, because it really tested him on, on every possible level, that he was able to survive. And he was able to survive with like his integrity intact because he sought meaning. He sought meaning in his interactions with people, even in these terrible conditions. He sought meaning in his interactions with people um, he sought meaning in his act, interactions with himself that all of this terrible thing is happening to me, but there's a reason to it. There'll be a purpose. There'll be something for me to teach and pass on to other people when this is over. And that's essentially the story. So you can survive anything as long as you're able to 
have meaning to it. And, and people who can't do that often emerge from these traumatic experiences as very bitter people. No kidding. Um, you, um, you're a certified EMDR therapist. Mm-hmm. And for folks who are uninitiate, uninitiated, um, um, oh, now it's escaping me. Uh, my God, I want to say electromuscular, uh, EMDR, help me. What's it mean? So it's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Thank you. And don't be too hard on yourself, man. It's not that big. It's not that big. It's not that big. You don't have to worry about all this. If you don't do it, you don't have to worry about all that. I got EMDR stuff all over the place here. Brain fade. However, you, um, I was trained in it, but I don't use it. I have certain systems of incorporating pieces of it. But explain to me how you would utilize that in therapy. Okay. So the thing with EMDR is, is it is a protocol, right? Um, my, and since the, uh, initiation of, of EMDR, since it was brought to us, there have been adaptations of it. My focus is what's called, it's attachment focused EMDR. That's the modality I like. And I was trained in it, um, throughout the certification process by the person who did my supervision. So she was, I would meet with her every couple of weeks. We would go over our cases. And it's all based on the work of Laurel Parnell. And so the idea of attachment-focused EMDR is that you're really looking into some of the early traumas or traumatic experience of family of origin. So if if you're also kind of like involved in this idea that substitution disorders themselves are kind of like attachment disorders, there's this element of looking at these frac- these relational fractures that people experience in their early life. And you can almost track those patterns of relationship building into their adult life. And you see the family of origin, like, let's say you're talking about someone who, if you go back to like age five or six, they can identify that they never really felt loved or cared for, but that was normal, right? They just were never really nurtured properly. So consequently, maybe as an adult, going through into adolescence and adulthood, they never really felt close to people and never really felt part of things, you know? And maybe the medication of alcohol enabled them for short periods of time to feel like they were part of things or feel like they were connected to people. So... In the absence of alcohol, when you're trying to get sober and integrate recovery and get into 12-step work, and you realize that it's faltering and that you don't feel like you're part of this thing, we go back and we start to reprocess those experiences. Mm-hmm. And because often people who didn't weren't nurtured as children, somewhere inside of them, they attribute that to themselves. Sure. And they don't know that they've done that. And that's part of what EMDR and the attachment focus exposes. So if I'm looking at this, if I'm looking at Easter from when I was seven years old, right, and I'm isolated or not part of or wasn't nurtured, and I look at that experience and I come to this kind of conclusion that I am unlovable or I'm unworthy or I'm not good enough because maybe other family members or other children got attention that I didn't get, 
So we're looking, we're, we're bringing together that experience of, of that thought along with the experience itself and the feelings. And our population of people are very feelings avoidant. You can see it. The minute we come up with a memory, the minute I'm looking at an image of myself, alone, isolated, you know, at this, this holiday, and I don't feel a part of it, and the tears start to come into the eyes, immediately what I want to do is go into some story or kind of defer away from that and not participate in this conversation because it starts to become painful for me. So the EMDR, by holding the image and holding the self-attribution, allowing the person to work through that feeling and desensitize. Maybe when I first expose it, I start thinking about myself. I see the image. I'm like a 10. It's almost intolerable. But if I can work through it, now I'm down to a, a lower level of distress, a five, a four, a three, until I get to a zero. And then I can reprocess this and say, hey, you know what? I wasn't this bad person. I wasn't unlovable. It's just that my parents were kind of not present people. It wasn't me, it was them. And now I can take a look at this thing and I can feel very differently about it. And, and it's okay. And because I, it takes that, that sharpness out of the memory, I could talk to you about it. And we could talk about it for a while and I could tell other people about it. And now it's not a secret. And what do we say about secrets? Secrets will keep you sick. But if, I, but if I could desensitize myself to it, talk about it, it's no longer a secret. And now this thing makes it onto my fourth step, my fifth step, and it, now I can work through it in the recovery process. I'm truly grateful that you took the time to talk about the reprocessing, the clinical component to this. So walk us through a regular EMDR session. Again, for people who have no idea what we're talking about. You, okay, there's, there's a, different there's... mechanical devices that could be employed, but go right yeah. ahead. There's a lot, there's different ways to do it. Now, the term EMDR, right? The, the initials, starts with eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. So you're literally holding up your, your fingers like this, and you're moving that, you know, you try to get the person to move their eyes across the center line in each direction. And that's what we refer to as bilateral stimulation, essentially engaging both hemispheres of the brain. Um, I don't like to do the fingers, it's very distracting. I, not someone who can easily do two things at once. So to get the bilateral stimulation, I use something called TheraTappers. And essentially it's a, a little um, cell phone size gizmo. It's actually more like the size of a garage door opener gizmo in my hand. And it's got two leads coming off of it. And there are these little paddles that a person holds in their hand. And there, it, it will have an alternating vibration. It feels, feels like kind of like when you're when your uh, phone goes on the vibration mode, yeah. alternating. And that's the bilateral stimulation, back and forth, back and forth. So I'll tell you, bring up a picture of this memory from when you're seven years old. Let's bring up this picture at Easter. I want you to hold this picture. I want you to imagine it's a still Polaroid picture that you're looking at this memory. And I want you to tell me what's in the picture. I just want you to describe it to me, right? And you're going to tell me what's in the picture. We're not going to go way off into the story. I just want you to tell me what's in the picture. And the picture will be the worst part of this memory. Tell me what the worst part was, bring up a picture and show it to me. Now I want you to um, tell me what is the negative thought you have about yourself. And it's got to be about you. It can't be about that. You can't do other people's work for them. And it has to be some irrational belief, right? Some irrational belief about myself that's related to the picture. 
I am unlovable. Um, I'm not good enough. Whatever the thing is that I attribute to myself. And sometimes you got to kind of walk through that with people because it's not always clear what the negative cognition is. And there's something that happens once I have that picture and I get the right negative cognition, not good enough, unlovable, whatever the thing is, there's something that happens. We immediately go into feelings. Now we're looking at what's going on in the body. Now, one of the things that we know um, a lot with adults who have substance use disorders long-term is they may be extraordinarily intelligent, accomplished people, all of that, but often our emotional vocabulary is not very good. Like the names of feelings and things, understanding what's going on, what is that? It's, we're detached from that and, and, and we have our, our mechanisms of avoiding these things. So we got to kind of go into it a little bit and I'm going to ask, what's the sensation in the body? What do you notice right now? It's my stomach. It's my face. Let's just scan through and take a moment. Sort of, okay, so it's your stomach and it feels really bad. How much distress is it? Scale of one to 10. Well, this is an eight. Okay, this was really, now we're back there, right? Because I have the visual image. I have this negative thought about myself. The feeling has come up. And as close as I could come to bringing myself into that memory and experience of it, it, I'm there and, and now we're working and the paddles are going, right? And now we're working and the desensitization starts. So we wanna kind of start working our way down. You, you help, you know, and it's really the clinician's job at that point to kind of stay out of the way. And so there's something called adaptive information processing, which is your brain in a way kind of like knows how to fix itself, knows what you need. And it could kind of correct the story as it should have been or might have been or, or whatever the case. And you just kind of help move it along, right? You're, you want to be conscious of the person's looping or starting to repeat themselves or they seem stuck or, you know, they dissociate or something like this. You have to pay attention to these things. But, and, and there's things to do if that happens. But generally, we just work, you know? Tell me what you notice now. Well, in the picture, this is happening or that's happening or, you know what, um, maybe my parents weren't very attentive to me, but my grandmother was really nice. Okay, let's go with that. And grandma took me off and she was really cool. And I had a relationship with her that other family members didn't have. Oh, okay, uh, let's go with that. And now all of a sudden I start to feel differently because yeah. my theme, right, my schema of what this was and what it says about me I'm correcting it, right, by, by adding in other things. Or I might be utilizing these resources that we've developed in the therapeutic process, right, this, this committee of characters that we've developed, protective characters, wisdom characters, nurturing characters that I now bring into the process to kind of like help me, right? So if I have to call on Vin Diesel to roll on in to my – my, my Easter Sunday to help me out, find some Easter eggs or whatever the thing is, or get me out of there in his Camaro, we can bring him into it. And again, it reintegrated, you know, it just helps, it helps just give a different look at the memory as I desensitize, get myself down to a zero and start this reprocessing process. And I start feeling a little bit better about the whole thing. Now I can talk to you about it. It's truly fascinating. And I believe basically what you shared was helping people through this system be able to identify components that they can redirect, utilizing different 
uh, techniques, different representations of themselves, and be able to do the processing, which nobody talks about, which I'm just thrilled that you did. Well, it's the experience of it, right? Because there's this, um, the idea that like the body keeps the score. So all these bad things that have happened to me, they're still in there, right? And there's these like nodes of um, really, it's like at a, at a cellular level, at a neurosystem, nervous system level, there are these nodes. Like you, you remember, your body remembers. When you tap into the memories, the feelings from there, they come up. They're, they're right there. They're right there. And they certainly are. I'm going to take a moment here. We're going to step out for a little commercial break, and we will be back in a moment. The Sober Podcast is giving voice to recovery and is now part of the Soberverse. Join our new virtual sober environment where you can connect with people like yourself and find helpful resources in the following digital spaces. Sobernetwork.com, Sober.com, Sobersystems.com, Soberpodcast.com, Sobercoin.io, and RecoveryCoaches.com. Everything happens in the verse. And we're back with our guest this evening, uh, Eric Bricker from uh, sun, sunny South Florida. Uh, and we've been talking about your uh, EMDR. Um, let's see, you know, what does a potential client need to do to be prepared for this type of of therapy in order for it to be long lasting? So that's my responsibility or the responsibility of the clinician. You have to be able to, it, they need to be prepped. They, it needs to be explained to them what the, this is. And in the prep work, they need to be given the proper resources to kind of like manage and deal with what's coming. And do you find that as a result of effective EMDR, people's emotions start to percolate? Yeah, I think so. I think <laughs> you, get where you, 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 um, you get where you need to go. And I think the experience is powerful for people. And you can use it just as its own technique, or you can use it adjunctive with other things. So for me, like a typical case, just someone, you know, of, of someone that I'd be working with, let's say there are these four traumatic events and there's like a timeline of them. And that's really, that's their trauma. Yeah. And so we'll do maybe one or two EMDR sessions on each one of those. But that might, that might also be in the context of other work, you know, that might be other sessions to do other things. And then it's like, okay, Today, we're going to take on your, you know, the car accident. And that would be today and maybe continue on to next week as well until we feel like we processed it out and you're in a good spot with it. You know, I'll give you credit where credit is due. And the credit is you're speaking in terms of managing the therapeutic process. Sure. And being able to purposefully direct clients to a specific region of the style of engagement and what you are looking for regarding progress so that one success builds another success. And when it comes to freeing up traumatic pent up feelings, what I'm talking about is, oh brother, you just watch out because if you're effective, 
the dam can burst open. Um, sure. But it's good. Well, it is a protocol. And especially when you, you know, with the attachment focus. Yeah. So when we identify the timeline of traumas, right? Maybe let's say with this four, we want to start with the first one first. We want to work our way up to current. Sure. You know, so it, it, there's, there's like an order to it. Oh, the process, absolutely. So there's and managing a therapeutic process of what other things we can do. But with the EMDR, you want to kind of like stick to the protocol. Because yeah. that was, you know, a lot of people who learn EMDR, they do the original, the initial training. And then they'll go and they'll do the initial supervision so that you can get the certificate to say you're EMDR trained. And I did that. And I was really, really enamored with the whole thing. And I knew that this was going to be a big part of what I was doing next. Because I was already doing the grief and loss work and I could see how those two things intersect and I wanted more. So I worked with someone who was a consultant. So I get like an advanced certification from the MD, you know, so I could become a certified EMDR therapist, but more so, so that I could learn the, pro because it's a protocol and anything that's, anything that's like a protocol, it's going to, your ability to do, it's going to improve with repetitions. You want to do a lot, like if you do EMDR, you want to do a lot of it so that you can do it, you know, quickly like i don't i don't use i'm at a point where i don't i don't have to rely on a manual in front of me to like kind of go through the scripts like right. it's all it, 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 i can go through it you know do people call on you to provide emdr for their clients because that's what i do when i find that i'm at a place with a client who's ready to address their trauma although i am trained in it clearly i don't do it often and clearly i do not understand the nuances of it i've read a few books and i got certified but I'm not qualified to do the work. So I will farm it out to somebody else. And I have found that there's been tremendous progress. And so I warn folks, if you are interested in EMDR and you watch a video on it, I'm very pleased. But please do not think that the skill set that you need to be effective and treating the client with respect and being professional is accomplished in a 30-minute YouTube video. So. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, uh, So, hey, so listen, what, what brought you to this place? What, what brought you to working in this industry? And what do you do to make our industry a better place? So I'm involved, I'm involved in a lot of, I've been involved in a lot of different things. Okay. Um, I started off working in treatment. I started off as a behavioral health tech. Uh, working in a treatment center as a graduate student. I had done other things in mental health before that, but this was the okay. first in substance use disorders. Yeah. So I had already been a case manager in community mental health. I'd done some things like that. Uh, but in graduate school, FAU, Florida Atlantic University, was right across the street from a facility. It's no longer, it's called, it was called National Recovery Institute. It's, it's now it's something else. I think it's part of the banding group. But, um, at that point, it was National Recovery Institute, and it was a detox residential facility. And while I was in graduate school, I got a job there as a behavioral health tech on the, um, you know, during the week and on the weekends, part-time while I was doing school. And I learned from that, and uh, I just kind of got caught up in it. And I liked it. I liked the work itself. I liked the people. I liked the culture. I liked the whole kind of Delray, Boca Raton, Mecca of recovery culture. I got all caught up in all of it. You know, 
and just sort of stayed with it. And ended up doing a lot of different things, working in treatment centers. I was a clinical director for a while. I worked for the Seminole Tribe of Florida, Native Americans for 10 years uh, as a program administrator for behavioral health there. So I've done like a lot of different things. Well, clearly, for folks like you and I, we're licensed. And in order to get a license, we need hours. And here in Massachusetts, the LADC that I have, there's three levels of it. And the only level which allows you to bill insurances is the LADC one. And you need 6,000 hours of experience. And it's like, how the hell do you get 6,000 hours of experience? Well, you do it through internships. You do it through community services organizations. And you put the time in and make sure it's all documented. And I really got to tell you that for the work that I did doing emergency services, when I was on shift for 10 hours, you got those 10 hours of shift time. So I just recommend to those who are, um, you know, getting into the field, keep that in mind and do what Eric did, um, do what I did. I worked at a couple of psych hospitals. Eric worked at uh, some rehab centers. And um, I'll bet you down around Del Rey, there's a lot of opportunity for students. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. So because we have, it really is like an industry. There's so much behavioral health care, substance use disorder treatment, comorbid specialty facilities of all sorts. Yep. That if you're in graduates, because in graduate school, when you're coming to the end and you need a place to intern, that can be tough to find. And you're kind of like on your own to go find a place. As long as the right. school sticks you in a spot, they'll give you a choice of places that they work with. But you got to call, you got to interview. It's like a job. Yeah. But with there's so much treatment around that that is probably the easiest place to find something available. And, it, and even if you're not going to stay with substance use disorders, even if you, you want to go into a different specialty, I think this is a great thing to do because you really, within the population, you see everything. Thank you. All of the psychiatric, yes. all of the family dynamics, yes. uh, family of origin stuff, stuff with children, couples work. It's all in there. It's all part of it. So you can, you can utilize that as a springboard and take on whatever part of it you know that you want to evolve because a specialty is really what you know that's that's the direction our field is going that's that's um that's, that's our evolution and it's getting more sophisticated and with folks like yourselves um who are you know getting uh, specializing with um you know therapies like emdr um one last question and then i'll let you go what was one of the most difficult struggles you've gone through personally and how did you overcome it with respect to the nature of the business that you're in? Um, personal, like a personal struggle. Yeah. One of the most difficult struggle now, whether it be personal or educational or scholastic, uh, or, um, as far as your employment, what got in your way? How did you overcome it? And how did that make you a better clinician? So in 2017, um, my mom, uh, it was just like a terrible year. My mom died from Alzheimer's. Um, I'm sorry. I, I was laid off from a job, you know, as a clinical director of a treatment center. We just, it didn't work out. And we also had a substantial bat infestation in our home, like a colony of 500 of them in the attic. And they're very difficult to get rid of. What? Bats. <laughs> okay. 
500 of them. Okay. okay. Yeah, so they're difficult to get rid of because they're, um, they're actually a protected species. And so you have to get them evicted. That's the word for it, evicted. And you need a special permit for it. So it was really an ordeal. It took three months to get them out. Okay. And it was really like an ordeal. So all of those different things. And um, I developed like an acute insomnia, just stress-related and some anxieties and things like that. And I really, I, I just had to do a lot of my own work. I had to get help for myself. I had to, and do things that I wouldn't normally do. Like I was doing, um, you know, personal development, uh, like personal development groups, like sem- like weekend seminars and things like this, okay. participating, stuff I'd never done before to really kind of like spring me forward. And I always say that to people that there are two types of therapists. There are the ones that do their own work and the ones that don't. And you can, you can tell the difference. It doesn't take long. You can tell the difference. Well, I'm glad that you were able to survive that. And um, well, you know, I really, I, I, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. I got to say, um, it's always I'm very intrigued by specialists who are making a difference. Now there are many clinicians, and we, and we all are in there rowing at our own rate, and most all of us are able to be effective to one degree or another. But every now and then, there's somebody who is truly outstanding, and um, clearly, um, you have made a mark in the field. Now you you say you. Um, you have your own podcast. Uh, tell us about the podcast and where we can find you on the interweb. It is the Good Counsel Podcast. And so the idea of the Good Counsel Podcast, it's really like the helping people's podcast. And I like a broad definition of helping people. So it's all different sorts of people that are involved in the helping professions. And I really want to capture all of it. So it's, you know, George Jan, the first transitional, how, you know, like the guy who opened like one of the first sober homes in um, Delray Beach, Florida. Uh, Ray Estefania, preeminent, you know, kind of like high level national interventionist guy, a guy like you, you know. Um, uh, Will Schleifer, spirit to spirit trained uh, trauma therapist. You know, it's like a nice kind of uh, Andrew Baker, who's a, FAU University researcher on therapeutic relationships, um, and he's a clinician and a clinical director. But, so it's it's these types of people that are doing that are involved in different areas of the helping professions, and I've got uh, more. Oh, did I just lose you guys? But I, I I got I have so it's it's people like that, and um, they're hour long episodes. So it's good counsel pod.com and i'm also available on apple spotify google podcasts and oh, places wonderful. Like that we find podcasts no, w- wonderful i truly appreciate that you got any shout outs or anybody you want to say hello to um you know who i'd like to um so i would like to i would like to say hello to I would like to say, well, you know, I would like to thank Jonas and and yourself and Carrie for having me on. I appreciate that. Uh, Carrie Donahue, who I'm getting to know a little bit here through this process, and uh, yourself and uh, Harold Jonas, who, you know, I've known peripherally for a long time. 
you know, we've interacted professionally like years and years ago. So I just want to give a shout out to you guys. And, um, you know, I'm excited. I've been waiting to see what's going on behind the screen of the Soberverse. I want to know what's going on over there. So I got a little bit of a glimpse into it today. I'm kind of happy about that. Well, I appreciate that very much. And the, the Soberverse is growing. We have some truly innovative technology to employ to the very people who need it the most. And we'll talk about more of that in future episodes. I have a shout out to um, my friend Bessel Vanderkolk, who wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Bessel, you are awesome and much appreciated uh, by all of us. And for those of you who do not know, look him up. The Body Keeps the Score. So um, any last parting comments, Eric? Anything you want to say on the way out? No, I just uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for, for having me, you know, Howie, thank you so much for talking to me and having an interest. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on here with you guys. And uh, yeah, it was great. I enjoyed myself. Well, on behalf of the other so- Soberverse team members, uh, thank you all for joining us on the Soberverse, the Sober podcast today and enjoy the rest of the week. Howie Marlin here. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Sober Podcast. We hope it's been as good for you as it was for us. Please share our show with all of your friends, family, and acquaintances, and future encounters so we can grow and make our mission a larger reality. We have a growing social media presence on all platforms, so find us and like us, especially on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're listed in all major podcast directories like Spotify, Google, Apple, and the rest of them. Thank you all who make this show happen. Howie, our host, Carrie, our producer, and our sponsor, The Sober Network.